My name is Nina Callen. I'm a solo practitioner with the law firm of Nina E. Callen, attorney at law. And I'm also co-chair of the Boston Bar Association's subcommittee on insurance and reinsurance issues. I'd like to thank our speakers, Andy Kaplan and Frank Riccio for joining us today. Andy, Andy Kaplan has a, litiga a litigation practice which focuses on representing businesses and individuals in insurance claims and insurance coverage issues. Andy began his career representing insurance companies in complex insurance coverage disputes at Morrison Mahoney. After practicing as a partner with two Boston law firms, Perkins, Smith & Cohen, and Burns and & Levinson six years ago, Andy opened to Hood Kaplan. Did I pronounce that correctly, Andy? Uh, a boutique litigation firm. With Tuhid Kaplan, Andy uses his knowledge of how insurance companies handle claims to help his clients secure recovery on insurance policies. Our other speaker, Frank Riccio, has maintained a private law practice in Braintree, Massachusetts since 1987. He has substantial jury trial experience in civil litigation. His areas of concentration include medical and dental malpractice, trucking liability, liquor liability, general negligence, and crime victim representation. Mr. Riccio has been a clinical instructor in oral medicine at Harvard Dental School since 1995. Mr. Riccio is a member of the Massachusetts Academy of Trial Attorneys, where he's regional governor and chairman of the Medical Negligence Committee. He's also a member of the Massachusetts Bar Association, where he's co-chair of the Health Law Council, National Crime Victim Bar Association, the AAJ, and the Million Dollar Advocates Forum. He has been named a Boston Magazine Super Lawyer since 2005, and he's on the Board of Directors of the Massachusetts Citizens for Children. Mr. Riccio has lectured extensively in Massachusetts and throughout the country on medical, legal, and trial practice topics, and was a co-host on the WCRN Worcester radio program talking about the law. So that's, I'm reading what, uh, Frank and Andy sent to me, but I want to add that I've known both of them for many, many years. I've turned to both of them for uh, advice and questions about insurance issues and personal injury issues, and I'm thrilled to have them here today. So uh, I'd like to start off by asking the two of you, Andy and Frank, we're talking here today about insurance issues uh, in personal injury law and plaintiff's practice. And so let's start off at the beginning of a case. When you have a new case that comes in, uh, personal injury or anything where you're representing a plaintiff, what is your first question with respect to insurance and where do you take it from there? You want me to start? Go ahead, Frank. Okay. I think insurance is really the key. If the client for some reason comes in and says there's no insurance, it may be worth taking it from the perspective of winning the case, but you're not gonna collect anything, so it's kind of a waste of your time. So you always try to find out exactly how much insurance there is and what the claim involves. If it's a simple auto case, then they'll pretty much tell you what it is. It usually comes down to what the insurance of the defendant has most of the time and then whatever under insurance you have. On occasion, if you have an auto case, you may be able to do a liquor liability case as well, or you may be able to do a medical malpractice case. 
that's probably the, the, the simplistic version of what has to be done. So Frank, how do you find out what, whether there's insurance and what the limits are? Basically what you do is you write to the insurance company and they tell you what there is in terms of limits, how much, whether there's excess carrier or not. It's unclear to me. And again, I, I'm actually being asked to use my memory, whether the case has to be in suit before you can find out if there's an excess coverage. Typically that's usually what happens because what, what will happen is if you bring a claim and you settle it for the policy limits, you're going to have to get the insurance or underinsurance from the underinsurance carrier. So to a certain extent, you do find, as a practical matter, you do find out there's excess carrier. If it's in suit, then they have to find out. And that's how that works. Sorry for the dog. Everything planned never works. So Frank, let's back it up even a little bit more. So in an auto accident, typically we'll know who the insurance carrier is because it's gonna be on the accident report. But what about in other types of personal injury cases? How do you find out who the carrier is? Well, in medical malpractice, physicians are required to have insurance and they typically have a million dollars in coverage and you usually get that information from the carrier. Dentists do not need to have insurance, nor do chiropractors. Let me say that's terrifying. They say it is, but you'd be surprised. It, it's happened. It's happened to me. And, you know, sometimes I'm a, I'm a little bit deep into the case when it happens. So it's not always a good thing. But dentists are not required to have insurance, and neither are chiropractors. Nor lawyers, for that matter, right? Yes, that's right. So here, here's, wants here's, an, lawyers? here's an ad for all the young, new plaintiff's attorneys out there. Get insurance. You should really have it. It's, it's you your should. Uh, Frank, can you explain the difference be, uh, for people who might not know about between the underlying policy, excess policy, and umbrella, umbrella coverage? Yeah, the, the underlying policy is basically the basic insurance that you buy. It can be anywhere from $20,000 to as high as $2 million, $10 million, whatever, whatever coverage they have. Excess coverage is coverage in excess of the underlying coverage, and that typically is handled by another attorney. So those are the two that happen. And then you have what's called underinsurance policy, which is a first party policy. And that really goes to coverage that you have that's in excess of whatever the underlying tort policy is. And here's another plug for all the, anybody who's watching this, who owns your own vehicle and has an auto policy, you want to purchase for yourself uninsurance and underinsurance coverage because that will protect you if you get into an accident with someone who doesn't have enough insurance you're protected by your own policy so just to plug there and i just want to throw in one more plug if you have employees you're going to have to insure your vehicle because you're not covering employees and they're going to sue you and the and the the employee and they're going to sue you so you should have coverage 
Also, it's just to think about when you're representing somebody who's been in an accident insurance that you should be looking for. Yep. So, uh, Andy, I think this question is for you. Once you've determined that there is a policy and you've figured out the limits, are there circumstances in which, nevertheless, there might not be coverage? And can you describe that for me? Sure. Um, well, of course, every, every policy grants coverage and then it has certain exclusions. So, um, you know, let's, let's talk briefly about when you get a hold of an insurance policy, how you make sure that you have the right policy and that you have the complete policy and how you read it to find out if there's coverage, okay? So step one, let's say there's an automobile accident today and you, um, you're in a lawsuit, so you're entitled to get a copy of the uh, uh, tortfeasor's insurance policy. You want to make sure that you get the insurance policy that's in effect today, not last year's policy, or if it's not in suit for two years from now, make sure that it's not the new policy. Because of course, year in, year out, there can be endorsements or changes to what the policy covers. Just yesterday, I had a client that um, broke an oil pipe when they were doing work in someone's house. They spent $250,000 cleaning it up. They gave me their general liability policy. I'm reading through it. First thing I did is, well, what year is this? It was the year after the accident. I don't want to, I don't want to read the policy the year after the accident got to get the policy for the right year. So that's step one. Step two is um, when you get the policy on the cover sheet called the declarations page, it will list for you all of the forms and all of the endorsements that, that comprise the entire insurance policy. That's essentially your table of contents for the insurance policy. You then need to go through the thick stack papers that you've received and make sure that all of the endorsements and all of the coverage grants have the same serial numbers as listed on the declarations page. It's like a puzzle. You have to have all the right pieces. Once you've done that, how do you read an insurance policy? Okay. Well, the declarations page is essentially the table of contents. It tells you who it covers and the limits of their insurance. Basically, you start there. Then you read the grant of coverage. What types of things does this insurance cover? Then you got to read the exclusions. Even though we normally cover this and that, that's except for what's not covered in the exclusions. You're still not done. There's endorsements at the back. They change all the language you just read. So after you've read, great, it covers this and that, and we're not excluded, you got to read the endorsements and make sure that it hasn't changed the section you're relying upon. So it's a very... Uh, you really need to be disciplined when you need to read an insurance policy. They could be 50, 70 pages. You're going to read all the way through, read all the pieces um, to make sure you understand what's covered and what's excluded. Andy, a lot of times an insurer or an insurer's coverage counsel might have a difference of opinion than the plaintiff's attorney about whether or not there's coverage. What do you do in that situation? Um, well, you can either debate the point through demand letters and such, or you can have a declaratory judgment action or a lawsuit over coverage. If, they, if they're declining coverage and you can't convince them there's coverage, you can always bring a lawsuit. Can, you, can either one of you tell me 
let's say, um, starting with something really simple, an auto accident. Andy, you talked about making sure you've got the correct coverage year. What are some common exclusions under which an insurer might say there's no coverage for a defendant in an auto accident? Frank, do you want to jump in? I'll let you jump in because I don't, I've never really run into that. Okay. So the type, you know, the types of coverage issues you might be concerned about is, it, you know, is the person who caused the accident one of the people that's covered by this policy? So you need to read through a bunch of clauses. I'm driving my own car that I have insurance on. You're good. Um, my kid is driving my car. My kid is listed on my policy. She's covered. Um, my kid is driving my car. I didn't list her on the policy. She's not covered because you're cheating the insurance company. You're not paying premiums for her. So um, there's definitely, you know, you need, so you need to look through who's listed as covered, who's a household member, figure out is this driver that caused the accident someone who's covered. I think that, that that's a common issue you might, not common, but that, that's a stumbling block you want to avoid. And what strategy would you take? Uh, say you know there's um, an adult child living in a household who's not listed on the policy, who was driving a car owned by a parent. This is just an example. What strategy would you take to try to get coverage under the policy? Not trying to give you a law school exam question. <laughs> yeah, you know, sometimes there's just no coverage. I mean, if, if, if someone's an uninsured driver, uh, you might need to pass on the case. You know, that, that one, in my experience, is fairly black and white. Yeah, I think, I think it's black and white. Fortunately, as a practical matter, it almost never comes up because somewhere, somehow, some way, someone is covered by something whether they're household members, whether they have another policy that they're on. So as a practical matter, especially in settling with insurance companies. Now I'm gonna throw a caveat in. I'm a very strong believer in settling with insurance companies. Not all plaintiff's lawyers are. Many plaintiff's lawyers would rather deal with defense counsel, but defense counsel is a lot smarter and a lot trickier. <laughs> If you can get coverage somehow and you've got a settlement and the settlement is reasonable, by all means settle. Frank, at what point does defense counsel come into play? They come into play when you can't come to a settlement. Most of the time it comes into play because plaintiff's counsel doesn't produce medical records and they don't want to be bothered with them. They think uh, defense Defense adjusters are idiots. Wrong. If you give them what they want, you'll get a settlement. It really comes down to what you've got as a case. So I give the insurance companies as much information as they need to get the case settled. Defense lawyers are very smart. They know what they're doing. And they'll, if they have to find an exclusion, they'll find it. And they know how to try cases too. And if I could just add a point from a prior question, we were, Frank was talking about how he figures out what coverage is in place. And I would just add as a practice tip for the folks on this, uh, on this webinar, once you're in suit, of course, everyone's familiar that under the discovery rules, 
the defendant is required to turn over a copy of their insurance policy. That's the rules. It might shock you to know that you don't always get all the coverages. People don't always follow the rules. And right. so if you have a very big damages personal injury case and you're provided with one insurance policy and the defense lawyer says, that's all I know about, uh, to quote an adage, trust but verify, okay? So how do you double check that? Well, one way is if you look at the insurance policy you've been given, every insurance policy tells you what's the insurance agency where the company got the policy or the person got the policy. If you have a juicy case worth more than that policy you have, drop a subpoena on that insurance agent. Ask them for copies of all insurance policies, umbrella policies, excess policies that, um, that that defendant might have. You know, pursue that as its own uh, topic of discovery, because if you find another policy on top of the first one, that's more money in your pocket. Uh, Frank, I actually want to go back to something that you said about defense counsel will find exclusions in the policy. And just to clarify that, the, an insurer is going to hire two attorneys. And typically, you'll only deal with defense counsel. But defense counsel themselves cannot talk about coverage. It's what's the term of the art is the tripartite relationship. And so they'll have an entirely different attorney who's going to be dealing with coverage issues, probably before defense counsel. And so if you get, um, so going back even further, how do you find out if there's a coverage issue? Like you've already gone through the policy. You think, you know, it's at least, at least worth putting a claim in. Um, at what point do you as plaintiff's counsel find out that the insurer may be saying there's an issue with coverage? I, I asked them straight out, is, is there any ins insurance coverage issues? And, you know, most insurers are pretty straightforward. I mean, I know it's trusted, but verified. But for the most part, insurance adjusters aren't going to play that game, at least, you know, in, in my, my almost 40 years of experience. They're generally going to tell you what insurance there is, whether there's an excess carrier, whether there's underinsurance. There's the, I, don't, I don't really see them playing that game at all. And Andy, can you just describe the difference between the duty to defend and the duty to indemnify and how that plays out from the plaintiff's perspective? Sure, and I'll also elaborate just a little bit on the last question of Frank, because of course, you know, I have a different practice than Frank. Folk, since I help clients who have coverage issues, you know, in all those cases where the carrier is fair to Frank and they're straight up and they tell him this coverage, well, I never hear about those cases. I only hear about it when Frank or some other lawyer is getting jammed up when the carrier either sends them a coverage denial or a reservation of rights. So, you know, in my experience, that, that's how you'll find out if there's a coverage issue, um, you know, and, and if there's enough money at stake or significant enough coverage issues, they may hire a coverage attorney to write a 15-page letter quoting you all the exclusions and such, neither telling you, sorry, kid, there's no coverage, or we're reserving our rights. If the case turns out this way, we'll cover you. And if it's this way, you're not. And, you know, for the folks whose practices focuses on personal injury, um, you know, sometimes if there's enough money at stake, you may want to talk to a coverage lawyer 
to help you navigate your way through there. Um, so that's that's adding to to the last question. So then you asked about, I'm sorry, was the different duty to defend and duty to indemnify. Okay, yeah. sure. So when you buy liability insurance, whether it's general liability insurance for your business, homeowners insurance for your house, malpractice insurance for your legal practice, you're really buying two different types of insurance. You're buying lawsuit insurance. You're, you're buying legal fees insurance. So in other words, when you get sued, your insurance company has to hire and pay for the lawyers. That's the duty to defend part of your coverage. And then if you lose the case or there's a settlement, the other part of your insurance called the duty to indemnify pays for your liabilities. A lot of times the duty to defend part of your insurance is even more valuable than the indemnity part because God bless America, anyone can sue anyone for anything, whether they got good grounds or not. So, you know, even if it's a meritless case and you get sued as a lawyer or there's a personal injury case, whatever, the legal bills can really, really mount. And the duty to defend, that's the insurance company's problem, typically to hire the lawyers and pay for the lawyers. And it's only if there's some merit to the case and Frank gets a settlement or he, he rings the bell at trial, then the duty to indemnify pays for that part of it. And just to expand briefly, um, the duty to defend is a lot broader than the duty to indemnify. The way that you figure out if an insurance company has a duty to defend when there's a lawsuit is you take the complaint and you look at all the allegations against the defendant. And if any part of it at all has the potential to fall within what that policy covers, the insurance company has a duty to defend the whole case. So that's pretty broad. It's just based upon the allegations on paper and the complaint, whether they're true or not true. The duty to indemnify is much narrower. Frank and the other personal injury lawyers on this seminar, you need to prove your case to actually prove there's liability, negligence, causation, damages, prove that there's a liability the policy covers, then you get the indemnity payments. Yeah, and I, I just want to add that I'm speaking from real practical perspective. I've brought declaratory judgment actions. It's not as if it's, it never happens. It's just that both sides really are working to try to get the case resolved if they can. So if you can give the insurance company, because they're professionals themselves, I mean, they're not idiots. If you give them enough information so that they can choke on it, they'll settle the case. They won't, they, they'll understand that there, there could be exclusions and that we don't live in an ideal world where all theoretical thoughts are fought about. That's why I try to work with them as much as I can. You're the one bringing the claim. Don't forget that. And when you're before a jury, it's the same thing. You're bringing the claim. It's not that you're not bringing the claim. They're defending it. And if they create any doubt in a juror's mind, I can just tell you from practical experience, I've tried approximately 60 cases. You're going to lose because a jury is going to want to see what doubt there is. And if there is any doubt, the doubt is going to go in favor of the defense. So let me ask you, here's a theoretical question. Suppose you have a case, you represent a plaintiff, a pedestrian who gets hit in a crosswalk 
And you know that it was done on purpose, that there was some kind of fight between the driver of the car and the pedestrian, and the driver intentionally mowed down the pedestrian, causing serious injuries. And you also know that if this case goes to trial, those facts are going to come out. Now, given that intentional injuries are almost always excluded from insurance coverage, how are you going to write the complaint? Do you, do you want to include negligence so that the insurer is defending? Or um, are there ever circumstances where when you know there's not going to be indemnity at the end, do you want to just leave the insurer out of it? Frank, do you want to take that hot potato or do you want me to? That's, that's a hot potato. <laughs> I mean, basically what you do is you couch your complaint in negligence. And, you know, I believe it's, it's citing the Abernathy case, although I can't say for certain there might be a new one, where they basically intended the act but didn't intend the harm. And that's essentially what you try to do in, in those situations. As a practical matter... I think I've run into it maybe a couple of times and I've always got indemnity. So, you know, I've couched it in negligence and that seems to have worked. And just to expand a bit on what Frank says, you know, even if you're worried that, that if you went to trial, there may not be coverage, as long as you plead a complaint that requires the insurance company to hire lawyers and starting to pay for them, then yep. they're at the table and the Franks of the world, you, you can get to the settlement table, you can get a settlement. If they don't even start defending, you don't have insurance dollars even in play. Thanks. Um, let's talk about, so we've been talking about the, the duty to defend. Can you explain the role of insurance defense counsel panel counsel or any other counsel that might be involved when an insurer is defending under a reservation of rights? And actually back up, explain again, Andy, you already went over this, but explain what a reservation of rights is and what effect it has on a lawsuit and then what effect it's gonna have on the various attorneys involved. Sure, so when, when there's a lawsuit and the defendant submits the lawsuit to their insurance company and asks the insurance company to defend. Um, one response from the insurance company in layman's terms is to say, well, look, if the lawsuit turns out like this, we're going to cover it. But if these turn out to be the facts, we're not going to be covered. We're not going to cover it. And, and the legal term is a reservation of rights. So the insurance company is saying, we'll agree to hire lawyers and defend it now, but we're reserving our right to change our minds if facts come out that mean that this lawsuit is not covered, we reserve the right to deny coverage. So that's what a reservation of rights means. Now in Massachusetts, the SJC has issued the best line of cases for policyholders on reservations of rights of any jurisdiction in the country that I'm aware of. And so um, when an insurance company agrees to defend under a reservation of rights in Massachusetts, Whereas normally the insurance company gets to pick their own familiar lawyers and control the defense. In Massachusetts, they don't. Once there's a reservation of rights, the defendant has the absolute right to say to the insurance company, thanks, but no thanks. We don't want your usual lawyers. We're hiring our trusted attorney uh, that we're familiar with. 
and the insurance company has to pay the bills for the defendant's own lawyer. Um, that's, that's the ramifications of a reservation of rights. Um, do you want me to stop there? Or? Uh, keep going if you got something to say. Yeah, so um, it, it's perhaps, the ramifications are perhaps more interesting to folks who practice on the defense side than the plaintiff side. Let, let me stop here and maybe ask Frank. Frank, has any of that ever made any difference to you as, as, a, as a PI attorney? It, it, it does. It, you know, everything the defense counsel says means something to me. But it depends on how you handle it. There's nothing that you can really ignore. If it, I mean, I did a trial. It was a declaratory judgment action that I won, and I got coverage. They defended on a reservation of rights. I got, they actually got coverage. It went up to the appeals court. I settled it. The other guy decided he was going to go all the way. He went all the way. We went too far. <laughs> the appeals court reversed it. So I felt lucky about that. Yeah. You, have to, you have to assume that judges, appeals court judges, nobody knows what the right answer is. I, I just, before I went out on disability, I had a case that went up on appeal and they said I was totally right. Everything I said was absolutely right, but the judge had a big D. She had discretion and she used her discretion. So I, you know, my, in, my, in my world, my, my limited world that I have, I find that the best case is in a settled case. I find that the adjusters have the feel generally for what cases are worth much more than attorneys do. Good advice. So, Frank, I actually want to go back uh, to something, Andy, I believe you had said that, and this was a while ago, when you're trying to figure out what policy applies, you want to make sure that it's the policy that's in effect at the time of the accident, not when the suit is brought. But Frank, I know that you do a lot of professional liability cases, med mal, dental malpractice, and so on. Is there a difference in those types of policies and professional liability policies versus the auto policies that Andy was referring to? They're great. They were great policies up until 1990. Basically, there was usually a million dollars in coverage, sometimes as high as 10 million. And generally they paid when there was liability. They had this goddamn good do-gooder act, the National Practitioner's Data Bank, which changed everything around because basically what it meant was the physician who was sued, if he settled and it just not tried, just settled it, then he was liable for liability and that could affect his ability to be hired at another hospital. So the result was in malpractice cases, many more of those cases were going to trial, even when liability was good. And just to expand a little bit, one other difference between malpractice policies and the auto policies I was describing is that, as I explained before, in an auto policy, 
you look to the policy that's in place on the date of the accident. They call right. that an occurrence policy. But lawyers' malpractice policies, doctors' malpractice policies, other professional liability policies operate on a different basis. They call it a claims-made basis. So if a doctor messes up a surgery today, but their patient sues them three years from now, three years from now is when a claim is made against the doctor. That's the insurance policy that's in effect when the claim is made that, that you need to look to. So, uh, so Nina's right. Uh, if you're handling an auto accident case, find the policy that's in effect on the day of the accident. But when you're handling a med mal or an attorney mal, et cetera, et cetera, you need to look at the policy that's in effect when there's first a claim, either a written demand letter or a lawsuit. An attorney mal malpractice case um, policies are generally crap. We have what's known as a claims occurrence policy. Doctors have, 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 have an, what's called an occurrence policy. There's a big difference. An occurrence policy means the negligence was covered at the time of the malpractice. Whereas with a claims made policy, it's is exactly as Andy said. It's you, your suit today for something that you did three, maybe five years ago. So you have to have coverage all the time because they can bring a claim at any time. And the policy is declining, which means that the defense policies and the indemnification policies go down together. Unlike an occurrence policy, which is what most physicians have, lawyers lose money every day the clock ticks. And the more indemnification, more um, defense costs, the less indemnification there is. So there's definitely an incentive to try to settle if you can. Unfortunately, that's not always the case. And just a trap for the unwary, for all the attorneys who are watching this, if you have a claim or a potential claim, as soon as you know that that claim, that you may have done something wrong, that, there, that may result in a suit, go and read your own malpractice policy. The one nice thing about attorney malpractice policies is that they're pretty straightforward. They're generally pretty short. Look at your policy and figure out when do you need to report to your carrier? Because it's not necessarily when suit is filed. It could be as soon as you know of a claim. It could be when you renew your policy. But one really important difference between claims made policies and occurrence policies is that with if you don't tell your insurance carrier right away when you're sued with an occurrence policy, you're still covered unless your insurer is prejudiced because you didn't tell them right away. But with a claims made policy, such as a legal malpractice policy, prejudice is irrelevant. If you don't notify your carrier within the time set forth in the policy, you, you're, you've um, negated coverage. Yeah, it's a, real, it's a real lousy deal for attorneys because attorneys sometimes get in a trap. They don't even know they're gonna be sued. And you know, they've had some alter, you know, some, some difference with their clients, but they, ne they never realize it would be raised to a lawsuit. The adjuster could, and I suppose defense counsel could say, well, he should have said something sooner because that was definitely a lawsuit just waiting to happen. 
So you've got to be a little bit more careful when you know that the claim is going to be made against you at a time, at a later time than the time of the occurrence. Frank's absolutely right. And just to give a bit of a horror story, uh, as part of my coverage practice, I'm representing a Boston attorney who's recently been sued for a multi-million dollar malpractice case from a disgruntled client who isn't happy that he lost his lawsuit. And the insurance company is saying, well, geez, this client's been grousing about this case for years and years and years. You should have seen the writing on the wall. You should have told us about it a couple years ago. Well, we've had to turn over the thousands of emails between him and his client, every shred of paper so the insurance company can go through with a fine tooth comb and try to say, you should have told us about it a couple of years ago to a deep six them on coverage. So Nina's absolutely right. If you either made a mistake or got a client who's unhappy to the point where you think it's reasonably likely there may be a claim, you're best off just tell your insurance company about it then and there. Don't, don't wait for them to come along because otherwise you might blow up your coverage. And don't take them up on their offer for you to get, you be the attorney. They did, they did that to me. And a client was trying to sue me for missing the statute of limitations, which I didn't do. So they wanted me to talk to the client and to talk to the plaintiff's lawyer. And I said, uh-uh, I want to hire a lawyer. So I did hire a lawyer. I had the lawyer, and of course the lawyer defended me, and I was right. And it was ended very, very quickly. So yeah, don't don't fall for that. Yeah. Know what they're doing. They and they really do. I I I can't get over how well they know what they're doing. From a plaintiff's perspective, if you are uh, representing a plaintiff in a legal malpractice claim, and you want to make sure that the insurance company is notified so that they can't claim that they weren't notified in time, what steps do you take? Again, you're representing a plaintiff in a legal malpractice claim. I would just send a certified letter. That's enough. And then the, still on this topic of malpractice actions versus personal injury accident, personal injury accidents or personal injury actions, um, have you in your careers experienced any difference in how the defendants feel about being sued uh, in say car accident, construction accident versus a malpractice action, either against doctors, dentists, attorneys, anything like that? What, what is the difference in their involvement in the case as a defendant? Frank? You want to mention that? Doctors don't like to get sued. Nurses don't like to get sued. They come across very, very well. I have not had the good luck that Lubin and Meyer has had on some of the doctors. Most of the doctors that I have had to deal with have come from central casting. They come across nice. And I think jurors tend to give them the benefit of the doubt. That's been my experience. Even though they're not nice, but that doesn't show. And when you've had when you've sued doctors or nurses versus bringing car accident cases, is it fair to say that doctors and nurses bite you harder and don't want to settle compared to some someone who has a car accident? I find generally that defense counsel work very hard. So they work hard with doctors and nurses 
but they also work hard with car accident cases. Sometimes there's agreement on certain facts, but jurors ignore that too. So I have a lot of faith in the system. I've, like I said, I've, the, the more I've done, the more I realize your best bet is your knowledgeable defendant. And that typically is a claims adjuster, believe it or not, for the majority of the cases, not, not all of them, but the claims adjusters seem to know what they're doing. They've done enough of them and they know what the cases are worth. That's been my experience. So, Frank, tell me, what if you have a, you have a good case, you know, it's not super high value, but $100,000 policy, which seems around the value of the case, and you've just got a claims adjuster who's either you can't get their attention or they don't understand why it's a good case, and you don't, you still, you don't want to put in the suit, you just want to deal with the insurance company, what do you, how do you elevate it up the chain? How do you get someone's attention so that you really can settle it? You just keep calling and eventually they listen. They're, they're really busy. I mean, they, they work pretty hard. It's a thankless job. And I just keep trying. I keep sending records. I'll send them records again and over again. Phone calls, that type of thing. They eventually come around. I don't, I don't, I've, my experience, I mean, not all the justices have been great. I mean, I, I can, I can tell you horror stories. I could tell you stories of going to mediations and them not increasing an offer. So I'm not, I'm not giving a Pollyanna-ish view, but in general, you know, the more treatment, the better. The higher the specials, the better. The lack of gap in treatment, the better. They're all going to take that into account. So give them as much information as they, as they want. If they want medical records and their prior records, give it to them. You're going to have to give them up anyways. You know, if you don't want psychiatric records, say you don't want psychiatric records, but don't bring a psychiatric claim. You can't have it both ways. Same thing with wages. Sometimes people don't want, don't pay taxes. I mean, they get paid, but they don't pay taxes. They don't want the IRS calling them and telling them, well, you know, you owe us money. So I just don't bring the claim. That's generally how I handle it. Uh, and, um, sorry, I lost it. I com completely lost my train of thought. So I'm going to go back to something else, which is the difference between malpractice claims and occurrence claim uh, and car accident, construction site accidents that we were talking about. One difference in policies is that many malpractice policies have consent to settle clauses yep. under which the insured, the doctor or the lawyer has to agree to a settlement before it can go forward. How does that play into your, into the claim? I have no idea, but Andy must know. Well, I mean, it, it can make it harder to get a settlement because, you know, if there's a car accident case, the insurance company controls whether there's a settlement. And most often uh, the guy or woman who was unfortunate enough to crash into you doesn't really care. They paid for the insurance. And as long as the insurance company is going to pay to settle the claim, they're not particularly engaged. In the other hand, you know, as Frank pointed out, if doctors or nurses, or at least doctors settle cases, there's reporting, there's ramifications for them professionally. And since 
under their insurance policy, they, they, ha they have a right not to settle. The result of that is that more med mal cases go to trial than auto accident cases because doctors would rather roll the dice and settle. I tried a case about five years ago where there was a consent to settle policy and the dentist refused to settle. We won the case. It was a horror show for the dentist, but it was a horror show for me too because I only got $1,000 pain and suffering. So, you know, good case is a settled case, I say. Right, well, what, one further wrinkle is that there's different flavors of consent to settle clauses. There's different types of them. And some of them have something called a hammer clause that says, on the one hand, Mr. Doctor or Mr. Lawyer, we, we the insurance company can't settle your case without your consent. But on the other hand, if we get a settlement that we're willing to pay and you say no, and we lose more money than that, you have to pay, you have to pay the extra money. So that might result in a bad outcome for the Franks of the world because they want the deep pockets of the insurance company to, to pay up. Frank, going back to what you said about you'll turn over whatever the insurance adjuster wants, you talked a lot about paperwork, medical records, sometimes uh, wage records. What about if they want either a recorded statement or a statement under oath? Do you agree to provide that? As a general rule, the answer is no. On occasion, especially if you have a client who really just wants to settle, they don't want them to go into suit. I don't have a problem assuming the client is not scrofulous or anything like that, which usually isn't the case. So as a general rule, I don't. I don't give statements. You know, I'll send police reports, medical records, most adjusters respect that. They don't really give me a hard time on that. That's really never been a hard time area. You and know. Frank, I know this from having worked with you. One thing about police report or operators reports is that you always tell your clients not to fill out the chart on the operators report. Is that right? Yeah. And why is that? Because they sometimes misconstrue it. And I don't want it to be misconstrued at a deposition. Well, I just don't have them fill that out. Okay. Um, let's talk about policy limits. So at the very beginning, we talked about the importance of getting the policy, figuring out the correct policy year and what the limits are. How, does the, how do policy limits come into play with respect to your settlement negotiations? I guess I could try answering that one. Um, they, they come into play. I mean, you know, there are some cases that are worth the whole policy and that's fine. Uh, in some cases, the, the case is worth less. You just try to do the best you can do. You try to maximize the value of the case. And like I said, I can't repeat this enough. I find that adjusters, if given enough information, will usually come to a reasonable settlement. Now, it might not be a great settlement. I'm not asking the adjuster to come to a greater settlement, but what I am asking is that they come to a reasonable settlement. So I think in general it works. Now, Andy, you I could add one wrinkle. 
you know, on occasion, you may have an injury case where you, the value exceeds the policy limits. Yes. And that can create pressure on the insurance company to settle within the policy limits. Because frankly, the defendant, if they're at all sophisticated or if they have a lawyer who knows insurance law, they can be screaming at the insurance company, you better get this case settled within the policy limits because if you don't and there's a verdict above my insurance policy limits, my personal assets are exposed. I saw that happen. I don't do a ton of personal injury work, but a bunch of years ago, I had a, a wrongful death case for a senior citizen, a lovely gentleman. A company had a million dollar policy and there was actually the prospect of punitive damages because based on the facts of the case. And I had the company, you know, I'm suing the company, but I know that their lawyer was leaning on the insurance company. Hey, you better pay Kaplan because otherwise he's going to take us to trial and, you know, take our company from us. So from the plaintiff side, if you have the prospect of a verdict or a settlement value above the policy limits, you might actually have some conversations with the defense lawyer or the co private counsel for the defendant to put pressure on the insurance company to help you get the policy limits. Yeah, that's really true. That's really true. Keeping in mind that the insurer has a duty to its policyholder to try to protect the policyholder from an excess judgment and can be liable for, the insurance company itself can be liable for punitive damages under 93 and 176D if it doesn't protect from an excess judgment. Absolutely. So, uh, and speaking of 93A and 176D, starting with the basics, can one of you explain to me what chapter 176D is and uh, how it ties into everything that we've been talking about? Sure, I'll, I'll give the short version. So chapter 176D of the Massachusetts General Laws defines what are deemed to be unfair or deceptive insurance claims handling practices. What are the no-nos that insurance companies are not supposed to do when they're handling a claim? And um, probably the, the most significant one, uh, prohibition of one, a requirement of 176D is if there's a liability claim against an insured where liability is reasonably clear, it's a strong case. A rear-end accident, there's clear liability. Um, an insurance company has a statutory obligation to make a reasonable settlement offer where liability is reasonably clear. Um, why, why is that helpful for personal injury lawyers to know that? If, if an insurance company violates 176D, that is automatically a violation of the Massachusetts Consumer Protection Statute, Chapter 93A. And if you win a claim under 93A, first of all, you automatically get your lawyer's fees on top of your damages. And on top of it, if you really ring the bell and you prove that the insurance company's violation was particularly egregious, was willful or knowing in the words of the statute, then the judge will either double or triple the award to you. So in the right case where an insurance company is behaving very, very badly, you've got a clear cut lawsuit and they're not offering you anything close to fair value, if you take it to verdict and get a judgment, you can then potentially have a follow-on 93A176D lawsuit where if you win, you could get a double or triple award and your lawyer's fees on top of it. Andy, at what point in a case would you recommend 
sending a 93 a demand letter to an insurer you're representing the plaintiff at what point do you contact the insurer with a 93 demand letter for unfair settlement practices so i do it less often than a lot of lawyers do it i've heard it said that clerks and court separate out the civil complaints from the criminal complaints because the civil ones have a 93a that lawyers put it in every single time they're suing someone they want to say you've acted unfairly and deceptively and if you if every time you have a case with an insurance company you accuse them of bad faith 93a 176d um it's not going to get you any leverage and sometimes it gets their back up i mean they understand if you have to sue them if there's a reasonable disagreement about coverage but if you're saying it's bad faith sometimes a claims rep or the lawyer it'll get their back up you're accusing them of, of acting badly um so but so i would be selective and in a truly bad faith case you've got clear liability they're lowballing you uh, i'd send a 93a demand um you know, if they've dragged their feet and it's, and they haven't promptly responded to your communications, that's another requirement of 176D. So if you're thinking of going this route, if you pull out 176D, there's about a dozen specific prohibitions. Read through them. There's oodles and oodles of case law. And there's two or three cases from the SJC in the past couple of years where insurance companies have got their bell rung for multi, multi, multi-million dollar judgments, doubled or tripled. Read those cases, get familiar with them. Those are the cases, those, if, if your case looks like those, then, then go that route. So thanks, Andy. We have about five minutes left and I see that we have a couple of questions. So I'm just gonna read them and throw them out. The first one is, uh, with a defendant with large assets, for example, $10 million of assets, personal assets for the defendant, but uh, only carries $2 million of insurance coverage, what is the tipping point where you would pursue a claim against the defendant's assets rather than settling with the insurance company? That's a frank question. That's a frank question. I generally don't go for the assets um, I mean, it would have to be something really egregious, and I haven't really seen it. I mean, they could file for bankruptcy. They can hide their assets. I've had a couple of cases where I've been stuck with assets. I got a $7 million award that I couldn't get assets. So it's kind of a fool's game when you start going after people personally. I generally just work with the insurance. Part of the issue being that if somebody is really rich they're rich enough know, to know how to protect their assets presumably presumably and they do i mean that's just that just makes a lot of sense i tried strictly for insurance i'm in business myself i know what it's like so i don't i don't do it some people do do it i guess so i don't know Not uh, many times happen so uh here's another question is there any rule 4.2 ethics issue in preliminary negotiations or communications with the insurer before filing suit? Throw that out to you guys because I have no idea. I'd say no. I mean, I don't have the rule book in front of me. I assume from memory that's the rule that says when you're an attorney, you can't communicate directly 
with an opposing party who has a lawyer. So, um, uh, um, you know, when, when, when a claim is first submitted to an insurance company, every day of the week, claims reps directly deal with personal injury attorney, claimants attorneys like Frank, and they, they don't have a lawyer. And that's perfectly kosher, that's not unethical. Uh, you know, if things get heated, or if they think there's a coverage issue, you know, they'll be the first one to tell you, okay, from now on, you know, we've got defense counsel, talk to them, or we think there's a coverage issue, talk to them. They'll let you know that they have a lawyer. But short of that, um, I don't see an issue. And yeah. going either further, and Frank, maybe you can address this, even once a case is in suit and uh, there's insurance defense counsel, plaintiff's counsel can still talk directly to the adjuster. And when I was insurance defense counsel, it used to drive me crazy when that would happen. But a lot of times that's how cases get settled. Frank, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree with that. You know, I, I talk to the adjuster. They, many times I get permission. I, if, there's, if there's defense counsel, I usually will get permission from defense counsel. But I prefer talking to the adjuster, to be quite honest with you. I think that's very good advice for the newer lawyers on the call. Um, um, if you're dealing with an adjuster or any opposing party and they want to talk directly to you, just get the blessing of their lawyer. Get an email, get, get a note just to cover your own tush. And once, once you get permission, it's fine to have those direct discussions. But don't go around the lawyer and secretly talk to their client. That, that could be a rule 4.2. Yeah, I, 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 I try to keep it all straightforward. Okay. So we are very close to being out of time. Any last closing remarks that either of you would like to add? No. Tough business. It's a tough business. And it's going to be tougher with this COVID virus because of the fact that jurors are going to have to be together. I wish that especially with car accident cases, they just had judges here and make decisions based upon what the facts are. Many times jurors don't know what the facts are and they, I, I would rather see them thinking like adjusters. That's just my opinion of it. So, but I've, I've done it a long time. I'd actually echo what Frank is saying. I once was handling a discrimination case that settled over the weekend, a uh, uh, trial. And so we went in on the Monday and said to the judge, geez, the jurors are all here. Any chance we could talk to them and see what they thought about the case, which is very rare. And I got to tell you, when we heard what they thought of the case, I almost had a heart attack and died. I mean, I mean, they're thinking of things you can't even imagine they're thinking of. Yeah. So settlement is usually your friend. Yes. You got no idea what juries are going to do with your cases. You really don't. All right. The more you realize that. So I'm going to close this out by saying that when I started my solo practice in 2002, Frank Riccio was one of the first attorneys that I contacted. He gave me great advice. For the last 18 years, I often call him when I have a question on a personal injury claim. Wonderful person, wonderful attorney. Similarly, Andy and I have known each other for about 10 years. I've called him frequently on coverage issues. Again, fantastic resources. And um, thank you both so much for your time. Thank, thank you. you. I've enjoyed it. Thanks.